You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So as we worked uh, through several weeks in the opening to this letter, a question that might occur is kind of a, so what? I mean, okay, great. We've, we've got all this salvation, this great language of God uh, caused us to be born again to a living hope uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded through faith for a salvation and ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, right? There's this salvation, this incredible um, just carrying on from Peter about the glories of our salvation, what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us through Christ and saving us and securing us. And so this is all great, I mean, just great uh, soteriology, great rejoicing over our salvation, all that God has done for us. And often what we can end up with when we go through something like this, we can often ask, that's great, but, but so what at a ground level? Now, now what? I mean, oftentimes Christianity, for many, the idea that Jesus would do this for them is, well, great, just fine. All right, good deal. I'm, I'm glad to hear. Uh, I'm I, in. Sounds all right. Okay, Jesus did this. Um, that's great. But how is that really going to affect or how should that affect my everyday life? Okay, great. So at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and if we study that out and we know that's talking about this appearing, the, the, the unveiling of Jesus at the last day, there'll be this, this joy this, that, that will come to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That, and that, that future knowing, the future understanding of that revelation, Peter says, gives us anchor through the trials of this life, because we're, we're thinking eschatologically, right? We're thinking at the end, this is all going to be revealed to praise and glory and honor. But how does that really affect or give us any sort of direction for our day-to-day -day lives? Is Christianity anything more than just a promise for an afterlife that we ought to be grateful for but has no real bearing on our lives right now? And the answer to that is just a simple no. That is not all Christianity is. That is not what the message of the gospel is, is some future message of one day in the great by and by, we go to heaven to be with God, and that's all that really matters. We know that that is not all that there is to Christianity. And we know that because of this connecting word that we started with here in verse 13. Peter says, therefore. I mean, this, you know, you always ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. There's a, there's a purpose statement. Because of all of this glorious work of God in saving his people, therefore there is something that is to take place. There is something that is to go on. Peter is expecting 
that there are consequences in the life of a Christian as a result of what God has done. We covered the the first, we covered this therefore, and it was the, the first therefore is that the Christian is to therefore set their minds and set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to be, to say that we're not just to be eschatologically minded people. It's not to say that we aren't to be. We are to be people that have our hopes set fully on the grace that will be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. We are to set our minds upon this coming final day, this coming final day of justice when God punishes evildoers and where those who have placed faith in Christ, those who are his people receive the praise and honor and glory and caught up into that in Jesus Christ. Knowing this emboldens us and encourages us to this day to live and to love sacrificially. But it also helps us to live lives of obedience, putting God and his works and his ways before our own. And that's where Peter goes to next. He calls the people of God to live lives that reflect the character and nature of God, that they would be holy as I am holy. Aim matters. Where you're aiming at matters. Aim matters in this life. It matters for you individually. It matters for us corporately. What are we aiming for? What are we trying to get to? Where are we going? What do we want to be? Aim matters. It matters, like I said, for you individually and for us corporately. What are we aiming for? Maybe you've heard this statement, uh, shoot for the moon or aim for the moon even if you miss, you might land among the stars. Anybody heard that? That is so cheesy. I'm ashamed I even said it. Because the reality is you won't. If you miss the moon, you'll just probably get sucked back into Earth's gravity and then burn up as you crash back into Earth. But anyway, uh, that's beside the point. <laughs> but the, the idea is, is trying to put into people that the thought being communicated is, you know, go for something. You have a goal, have an aim somewhere that you want to go. But there's this, there's this recognition. You ought to aim at something. But what you're aiming at is very important. I heard this story. Actually, I, I tried to find it. I spent, I, I'm ashamed to say, I spent like an hour and a half trying to like find the pastor that I heard this, this story from. And I could not find it. So I can't give credit. But it's a true story of a guy named Matthew Emmons, I think is how you say his name. And he's an Olympian sharpshooter. He's like, he's, he's a world famous, internationally famous uh, sharpshooter. And there's a contest. I had to look this all up. Um, you know, I, we've all seen like the Winter Olympics where you, you cross country ski and then you stop and you shoot stuff. Well, this is just like uh, the 50 meter 3X or something. I, I, don't know, I don't know what the competition's called. But basically, you have three different positions from which you shoot at targets. And you have an hour and 45 minutes to do it. I don't know. There's a whole thing. But you shoot from either you shoot once kneeling, once laying down prone, and then standing up. Different, those are the three different positions that you would stand. This guy is uh, internationally... Uh, has won many competitions. He's in, uh, he's at the Olympics. 
he has done so well, performed so well at shooting his targets, all he has to do is hit. And these, these people that when they're shooting targets, they're, they're shooting bullseye. I mean, they're, they are, it's, it's millimeters that they're measuring for how their aim on the target goes. This guy had done so well all the way through the competition, all he has to do is just shoot the target anywhere, basically, and he's got gold locked. He's, he's, he's done, the, he's, he's so far outdone the rest of the competition. All he has to do is just hit the target at some spot and he's got gold locked down. You know, and so, you know, if you're into shooting, which I, I don't do a lot of shooting, but you know, they talk about just the steadiness, steadiness that it requires. They're trying to shoot in between heartbeats like they, they're, they're just, their bodies are so tuned in with their breathing and everything and they're relaxing to shoot. He gets up to shoot. It's his final shot. He pulls the trigger and it's a bullseye, dead on. And he, he walks off thinks he's won the thing, he ends up in eighth place because he shot the wrong target. <laughs> he cross-shot, which is a thing that can evidently happen. He said it never happened to him. It happened to him once in practice, but never in any competition had he ever done this, that you're supposed to evidently go to the number of the target and then come down and sight in. And he failed to check to see which target he was shooting. He shot a bullseye in the wrong target and went to eighth place, lost gold, and handled it very well. But that story, I mean, where you're aiming matters. Do you have the right goal? Are we shooting for the right target? What is the aim for the people of God? Well, Peter lays it out this way. He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This has been God's purpose for a long time. Flip with me just quickly to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. And God has called his people out, right? We know the, the Exodus. We could go further back and talk about the reality of God calling out Jacob, Israel, and them going down into Egypt and they're prospering as a nation because Joseph and his bringing of his brothers down. But now they've prospered as a people in Egypt. God has rescued them through the plagues, through the Red Sea. They're now entering, they're wandering through the wilderness and they're at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, verse Verses 5 and 6, God says these words to them. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He's commanding Moses to say these things. That they shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now remember that passage because we're going to get to it later on in 1 Peter chapter 2. But God, you could pretty easily make an argument from Exodus and the rest of Leviticus. Like just when you get home this afternoon, use your computer. But maybe if you have an old concordance, look up the word holy and the amount of times it's referenced throughout Exodus, throughout the book of Leviticus. You can make an argument the book of Leviticus is all dealing with holiness. 
trying to create for God a people who are holy. They're major themes that God is working to make a people who are holy or set apart for himself. A people who are his treasured possession. A kingdom of priests, holy, set apart for God. They are to be distinct from the nations around them because they are God's people. Because he is holy. Because he is righteous, good, pure. Because he is holy, they are also to be holy. There is to be a family resemblance between the father and his children. There is to be a family resemblance. God says this directly in Leviticus 11.45 is the first instance. He says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Also Leviticus 18 verses 2 through 4. He says essentially the same things. This call that since I am holy, you also ought to be holy. Holy, And so Peter, when he's talking to the New Testament church, I want to just bring this idea up because this is not some new thing God is doing. And when we make calls for holiness or for caring about a righteous standard in the Christian life, that is not some newly invented thing. It's not going back to even maybe the, the 19 or the 1800s. It's not going back to the, the thousands or the 600s or the 500s. It's not even going back to year 33 of the birth of the church. This is a reality going back to the people of God since they were called out of Egypt as a people that because God is holy, his people ought to be holy. They ought to reflect the character and nature of this God. I heard the complaint recently that, that, that I was trying to roll the church back and, and the person that was talking to me said, you know, was well, it back to the 1800s? Like how far are we going back here? And I kind of, I wanted to chuckle because that's not nearly far enough. We, we need to be people who are back to what God has been doing all along. What God has been doing all along has been creating a people for himself, calling them to holiness. And in fact, you could say it goes back to eternity past when God foreordained a people for himself. God has been making a distinct people for himself. There is to be a Christian distinctiveness to our lives. Not just different in action, though that's, should be evident, but also different in the why, the motive underneath all that we do. There ought to be a Christian distinctiveness. The Christian lives under the realization that their lives are not their own. Not only are we to have holy conduct, as Peter says, but we are to be holy in all our conduct. You hear the difference there? It's not just having holy conduct as though we're all going to become, uh, go into the monastery and just all day long, we're just going to sing chants, be holy in all of our conduct. We're just going to surround ourselves with stained glass and hymnals and, and organ music. And then we're going to be holy in all that we do. We're going to be always holy. That's not what Peter's calling for. He's saying, be holy in all your conduct. He realizes that we all have to live regular lives in the world. 
but that there is a sense, there is a way that the Christian lives in all their conduct in a state of holiness, knowing that in all we do, it is to be done as devotion to God. So this being holy involves a couple of different pursuits. The first one is that God's people are to be engaged in Holy Spirit-empowered, grace-driven effort to live holy lives. God's people are to be engaged. Holy Spirit-empowered. This is not some sort of, remember we talked about the imperatives coming from the indicatives we do because of what God has done. This is not some sort of fleshly effort like God has brought us this far and now we're going to go make God happy. This is Holy Spirit-empowered by His grace, but it is still effort, a desire, an aim, we could say, to be holy, that we would be pleasing to God. There's not, and the, the Christian does not just give in that since we are not we are in sin free and won't be sin free until we die, we don't just give in. We don't just say, and we don't say, as is popular with some, well, Jesus forgives sin, so I guess let's just go sin all the more that grace may abound all the more. Paul actually deals with that argument, Romans 6 and 7. He calls it a, a total un. Uh, on a, a total wrong wired way of thinking about the grace of God. The call is to put sin to death. A Holy Spirit empowered, grace driven effort to live holy lives. This is done, firstly, by not being conformed. Look at your text. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It does require a putting to death a former ignorance, a passion that lives within ourselves that are pulling at us from within to put them to death, to not be conformed to the pressures of this world and inside of us, the passions of our former ignorance, but also actively seeking to do righteous works. We ought to seek the opportunities to do what is right and good, to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourself. I'm a, if you know my high school history, you'll chuckle at this. I'm teaching and coaching a flag football team this year. And because uh, I have a lot of football experience in my life, watching lots of football. But I'm coaching flag football. And it's for uh, my son's third grade. So it's, it's a bunch of third graders, 11 of them, which to uh, the, the mailman who, you know, is, overwhelmed at times by just his third grader and kindergartner at home, 11 third graders is, is bedlam. So, but the kids are a ton of fun. It's, it, they're, they've got so much energy. They, they're, they love being goofballs, which is a lot of fun. I appreciate that unless you're actually trying to do something like orchestrate some sort of a flag football team. Then energy and goofiness is not necessarily the best combination. It's not necessarily the best learning environment. So they have two objectives, right? It is to suppress in some measure their base instincts of just bedlam and wildness and goofiness and engage in some sort of attempt to follow the plan, to follow the play. It goes in two directions. There are things within them that for 
I'm hoping like for five minutes maybe out of the hour and 15 minutes, for five minutes of pushing their ignorant passions of their former ignorance down and learn and aim at something greater, okay? That's a poor illustration possibly, but as Christians, there's this mandate that we cease from our former passions. We have a direction our hearts want to naturally go. We have a direction our former passions want to go. Epithemia is this Greek word for passions, lusts, um, baseness, that there is this epithemia, there is this desire that I think if we all were a little introspective, we could probably think back in our lives and remember times where there's just this epithemia, there's just this passion, what's governing what we're doing other than just this sort of this this, this sense from inside, this desire, this learn, yearning, this lust for something. And Peter, he talks about this four times in the letter. There's our passage here this morning. He also says in 2.11, uses this word, says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He also says in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, uh, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, verse 1, with the same way of thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, epithemia, the same word there, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, epithemia. Every time Peter's mentioning it, it's a negative. It's a negative. Epithemia, this, this natural desire, this former ignorance, these passions from within are never stated positively. For Peter, the question we often give our young people, find what you're passionate about. <laughs> For Peter, that's a terrible <laughs> admonition because you've got all kinds of passions calling at you. All kinds of passions from the old man. We're not to be governed by, we now I know we use the word passions differently now, but we're not to be governed by our base passions, epithemia. But that does not mean that we sit locked up somewhere in an attempt to keep from enacting on our passions. We put them to death and move governed by the will of God and engaged in our work to glorify him. So, God's people are to be engaged in Holy Spirit-empowered, grace-driven effort to live holy lives. Be holy, for he is holy. Secondly, the aim, as we aim to honor God, to glorify God, the call to be holy is a call to trust Christ. It's a command that when we fail, because here's the thing, think about Peter. I mean, just, just think about the life of Peter. Here's the man you can take this text and you can kill people with it. <laughs> Be holy because God is holy. And so therefore, don't you dare walk out these doors and sin because God is holy and you should be holy. And you can slaughter people with a, with a passage like this that just wrecks them. Because what's going to happen when you walk out of these doors, everyone? Don't fool yourselves. You are going to fall short. You are going to sin. You are going to not... Now, I'm not saying march out and say, well, since I'm not going to, woohoo, let's go. No, <laughs> no. There's a, be a grace-driven effort to live 
holy lives, but the reality is that God is honored in, our, in the call to be holy, to, to, to trust in Christ. This is a command, because think about Peter, that's where I was. Think about Peter. I mean, he's often kind of the, 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 the back end of a joke about a guy who couldn't, kept getting his foot, sticking his foot in his mouth, getting in the way of himself. Think of the last place we meet Peter in our New Testaments, in the book of Galatians, right? What's happened? Paul has shown up and Peter has gone back into his Jewish uh, dietary restrictions. He's only eating with Jewish people. And Paul has to call him on the carpet and say, that is not how God called us to live. That is not how God commanded us to live. That's not just not what Jesus told us to do. That's not what Jesus, in fact, told Peter to do in one of his own dreams in Acts 10. Peter has to be called out of his sin. And so what, when Peter says a statement like, be holy as I am holy, I think it's pretty clear that Peter gets that that's going to need a lot of grace, a lot of repentance, a lot of pursuit, a lot of failure and a lot of at the end of the failure, turning to Jesus and trusting in him. We glorify God when we rest in the holiness that only comes by his grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one person who lived a truly holy life. His name was Jesus. Always obeyed the father never committed sin, loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loved his neighbor as himself, and yet this one sinless man bore the punishment of sinners on the cross. He suffered under the curse to redeem those who were under the curse. The holy ones suffered as unrighteous so that the unholy could be made righteous through his sacrifice. The Christian then can rejoice because they know that one day they will be fully delivered from the presence of sin in the light of God's grace. Either when they die and go into his presence or at the revelation of Jesus Christ on that great final day. Either way, we can rest and rejoice because we know the blood of Jesus washes us clean. Not only that, we rest in Jesus, we rejoice in the holiness that comes, this alien righteousness that comes to us outside of ourselves, Jesus making us righteous. But we rejoice and we gladly labor on. Our aim has not changed because God's aim has not changed. He will be glorified. He'll be shown to be the wonderful God that he is. And we get to participate in that on this side of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We as his people bought by his blood now live not for ourselves, but for him. We seek to glorify him by our obedience to him. And when we fail, when we sin and fall short of this command for holiness, we glorify him by turning to him as the only and yet all sufficient savior. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray we could hear the, the two-sided call of this command. That, Father, as we walk out of these doors, God, we would desire to live a life that honors you. You are worthy of every ounce of our lives. We have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. 
Our lives are not our own. So we therefore seek to glorify you with our lives, with all that we have. And yet, God, we know, I know, myself too well, that I will stumble, that I will at times even willfully choose rebellion. And that call to be holy remains. And that the only hope for us is the mercy of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. That we can fulfill in a very real way the call to be holy by when we go out and fail, when we go out and sin and find ourselves at odds with you, we can return yet again and find never-ending grace for our sin, as we turn from it, as we hate it, as we seek to kill it and turn to Christ, that we find forgiveness of our sins and find ourselves placed right there in the arms of our Father. God, help us this morning to feel the pull of that call, the desire to live in a way that honors you and the realization that as we want to see you magnified. So much of that is worked out by us when we fail, turning to you and praising your name for all to see that we have a God who forgives and helps the needy. Thank you for that, God. We pray this morning that even as we come to communion, that God, we do so confessing we are not yet fully made holy. We need a Savior. And God, may this meal that we share, may God impact us. May we remember the sacrifice that was given for us, making us holy in your sight, that we might be then empowered and encouraged and challenged to walk out of these doors and glorify you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.